0: some things we talk about at church a lot. We talk about life and death a lot because it doesn't matter really um, how popular you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter if you grow up to have a big family. It doesn't matter if you grow up even to take all the talents that God has given you and turn yourself into like a celebrity or to a famous person. It doesn't really matter about any of those things because there will come a day where you're going to sit in a doctor's office and someone's going to tell you bad news about your situation. They're gonna tell you that you've got something or you've only got so much time to live and that you need to get your house in order. You need to make sure your will is written down. You need to make sure your family's ready because uh, you've only got so much time left. That's gonna happen to you no matter what happens in your life, um, unless God takes you in a different way. That reality of death is gonna face each and every one of us. That's something that doesn't matter if you're rich, popular, famous, or whatever. You're gonna face that. And you probably know that, right, and you think about that occasionally, and maybe you've had moments where someone in your family dies or somebody, you go to a funeral or something, and you get sad, and you really start thinking about it, and then you kind of block it out of your mind and go live your life. That's pretty normal because God made us to live. We don't like the thought of death, so um, that's not necessarily um, your fault for doing that, but uh, it is important for us to take time occasionally to get serious about the most serious things in life. In fact, there will come a day where you'll face death and each and every one of you will die, I'll die, and and that will be that. And that will be um, all there is, I guess, right, to our life. Well, it's interesting because that scary thought of death is something that should frighten us, and it frightens everybody if you think honestly. Uh, But that picture of death is something that you look at as something that's future, right? Like maybe one day, at some point that's gonna happen. I want you to know that the Bible actually describes each and every one of us, although we will die physically one day, it says that each and every one of us start out dead. Now, that doesn't mean we don't live before we live, because obviously, before you were born, you weren't dead. You just didn't exist yet. But it says that we start out in a state of death. Now, that's an odd concept for us. If you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard that before. Even if you haven't grown up in church, maybe you've heard the phrase dead in sin, or we're born dead, or we have inherited sin, or original sin. You might have heard of those topics before, and the the most clear passage in the entire Bible is the one we get to today about that topic of sin. So as scary as the topic of sin is, I want us to face it today, and I want you to come to this text and say, I want to know the truth about this topic, because this is a huge deal. The a massive deal for me, because I will one day face death. And this says that we start out with death, and there is a solution. This passage that we're going to look at today is the same passage we studied at Revival. Now, we took four nights to study this text. We're, we're taking it only in two sermons. So instead of doing it in four sermons, we're doing it in two sermons, because I know you just heard about this. But there's nothing more important than life and death. And this text tells us all about that. So please open your Bibles. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. These are going to be some familiar words to you. If you went to revival summer camp, these are going to be words you've actually memorized before. When I read them, you're going to be like thinking of, of the song that you came up with to memorize it, or whatever hand motions you did, or if you're just like a really smart person, you just repeated it over and over again and then you remembered it, right? But you're going to remember this text as I read it. But I don't want to put it in the context of what we just studied last week. Remember, uh, Ephesians 1 was all about how we want to have spiritual understanding, and Paul told these Ephesians, hey, you can have that. I want you to understand what God did for you. And then what he's going to do at the beginning of chapter 2 is remind them of who they used to be. Remember this book I said, it's all about telling these Ephesians who you are and how you should live because of who you are now. This is going to take you back in time and remind these people who you used to be. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you... Remember in this book so far, he's talked about us, and he's talked about you, and there's like a distinction there. It's like, like, you know, us people, and then you people. So Paul's been already doing that, and I think the big contrast he's making is us Jewish people, remember, we were the first to believe in Christ, and then he talks to the Ephesians, he says, and you guys. We fall into the category of you guys, okay, because we did not grow up as Jewish people. We didn't grow up like that. So he says, and you also, Gentile people who are now Christians, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that's a very clear statement. that could not be any more clear. He's not just talking about those people. He's also talking about me, and he's talking about you. If you were to insert your name there, that might sound weird, but John was dead in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked. You could put your name in that too. Your name used to be dead in sin, or you are presently dead in sin. There's two options, right? Either you used to be dead in sin or you presently right now are dead in sin. Those are the two options this text gives us. It says, in which you once walked, which is kind of weird, if you're called dead and then you're told that you were walking. Okay, so think that one through. Uh, Dead people don't walk around. Uh, But here's what it's saying. Death is this analogy, and it's a good analogy because what it is is saying, it's like you're separated. It's like you have no abilities. You have no senses, right? Dead people, if you were, you know, there's that, viral TikTok trend, right, of, I saw it on Instagram, I don't have TikTok, but um, where people come up to a coffin, right, and say, oh, man, I'm sorry, I can tell that you've been working really hard uh, and that you're really sick here, uh, but you're going to need to come in to, to work on Tuesday, right, and it's like they're talking to a coffin. Uh, it's supposed to say, like, bosses are, like, hard to get along with and they demand so much, but, I um, mean, if you didn't see that, I saw that. Um, The joke is like, yeah, talk to the coffin, right? They're they're not coming into work on Tuesday, right? I'm sorry, they're not gonna be there. They're dead, they can't walk. They can't can't even hear you. They can't even see you. They're blind, they're deaf, they're mute. There's no senses, there's nothing going on because they're dead, right? Maybe a day before or three days before, they weren't dead and they were alive and they could hear you and maybe come to work, but now they're dead and they can't hear. They can't see, they can't feel, they can't touch. They they don't have senses, That's the kind of description that he's giving. When it comes to spiritual things, here's how we start out insensitive, right? Not perceptive either. We can't see spiritual realities. We don't understand them as we start out because we're dead, right? Another thing is we're not sensitive to what God wants, right? You hear God's word, and maybe your parents taught you the Bible. Maybe your parents didn't teach you the Bible, and now you come to the Bible, and you're like, I don't want to do that. Or some of you sit through sermons like this, and you just want me to be done because you're like, I want to stop talking about this because I don't get it. I don't understand. You act like it's important, John, but it it doesn't seem important to me. Here's why. Because this text describes us, before we're in Christ, as dead. Just like if I was talking to a dead person and I'm talking to a dead person about my golf swing. It's like, they don't care, right? There's not like, they don't don't care. You might, actually, you probably don't care either. uh, But uh, like the reality is they they can't care because they're dead, right? It would make sense for them not to to, to shut down and, well, because they are shut down, and to not hear you and not see anything, right? That makes sense with dead, right? With dead people, Um, that's the analogy that he's giving about our spiritual state. We're dead. We can't see. We can't hear. We can't touch. Can't feel, and we're separated from life. That's how we start out. But as dead people, we are still doing things. If you're dead in in sin, that doesn't mean you don't do anything. Um, In fact, you do a lot of things. And it says, here's what we do when we're dead in sin. We walk, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience All right that's an easy bible, bible trivia question but like who, who is he talking about there he's talking about satan right so he's saying if we're dead in sin there's two things that we're doing we're following the world doing whatever the crowd does wanting to be popular wanting to be successful wanting to be rich doing whatever the world does and if you lived at a different time in a different place you would follow the world in that sense and if you lived 200 years from now, in the future, you would still follow the world. You just do whatever the world wants you to do. Following the world. And second thing, following Satan. Now, most people who are dead in sin don't know they're following Satan. In fact, the Bible says that. Second Corinthians four four says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So it's like, you know, If you were to ask someone, hey, do you, do you follow Satan? Right, Most of them are going to be like, well, no, that's crazy. I have never follow Satan. Right? But the truth is, this text says that there's a lot of people in church who are following Satan. There's a lot of people with Christian parents who are following Satan. There's a lot of people that do their thing, that are nice people, but really they're following Satan and the course of this world. You might say, who are those people? Well, those are the people that are dead in sins. They're following the world, they're following Satan. And then look at verse 3 he says, among whom we all once lived. So remember, he's talking to these Gentiles who, you know, imagine back then the Jews were kind of like the people who wanted to serve God, wanted to follow God, and the Gentiles were the ones that didn't even know about God, right? They're the people that just, you know, live their pagan lifestyle, and if you ever, you know, were to look up what these Roman pagans did, I mean, it was really bad, right? I mean, they're they're sacrificing people, they're, um, you know, taking advantage of people, there's pillaging, raping, there's all this horrible stuff that goes on in their life, and you're like, well, those guys don't know God. So you might look at this text and say, well, it makes sense that Paul says they were. right? They didn't grow up in church. I mean, they, they didn't know anything about God. Of course they were dead in sins. Of course they were following the world. And guess what Paul says? We all were like that too. He says, I don't care if you grew up in church. I don't care if you did all the Iwana verses. I don't care if your parents teach Sunday school. We are born dead in sin. All of us. The Jews, the Gentiles. For our context the church kids, the people who've never heard of God, we're all living in, look at what this says, verse three, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature, by nature, not by earning it not by getting to a certain place where God said, now you're a child of wrath, now you're in trouble, you've crossed the line. No, by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, it didn't matter that we wore our little yarmulke and were circumcised and we were Jewish. It didn't matter that we had the Torah and we read it and we were bar mitzvahed. That didn't matter. We were dead too, which is why you can't look at this text and escape it and say, well, I wasn't. I mean, I've always loved God. I've always wanted to serve God. I mean, I've I've always known God. Well, you might have always heard about God, but that doesn't mean you always knew God like this because this text talks about me and it talks about you. I was dead in my sin. You were dead in your sin, or you presently right now are dead in your sin. It's one of the two. There's no third option. It says Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. Now, that's a lot of bad news, and, and you might think, well, I've heard that at church before. Don't like that message. I don't want to accept that, okay? Keep reading. Look at verse four. It says we were in this massive trouble, but God did something, being rich in mercy, rich in mercy, like having so much mercy that he's able to take care of this problem. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Do you see where it says because you were a good person and earned your way to God? Or because you memorized the Bible verses? Or because your parents are Christians? Or because you try really hard? Or because you want to be involved in church? It doesn't say any of those things. That is not why people are saved. If there's a person in this room right now who's a Christian. It's not because you're good. It's not. It's not because you tried. It's not because the family you were born in. That's not why. Here's why. Because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins he made us alive together with Christ when did god make christ alive right that's a weird thought it's not that god created that god created christ that's not the point but when jesus rose from the dead which is what we just talked about last week like when He raises him from the dead. There's this power that's now like transferred or given over. And now every Christian, everyone who's in Christ is also raised from the dead in a spiritual sense. And one day we'll be raised from the dead in a physical sense, which is why we say when you die, your body will be resurrected. You have eternal life. But right now, spiritually, when Jesus dies on the cross and he's risen again, what happens to Christians? He says, well, we are made alive together with Christ. Look at the next part. There's a little dash if you have a Bible like mine, right, a long line. It's just trying to say, like, hey, this is almost a parenthesis because um, it's an odd thought you could read straight through. But some people um, look at this and say, I don't know how this even fits, but look what he says. By grace you have been saved. Just a reminder, right, if you're saved, if you're forgiven, if God has forgiven your sins, if you're walking in Christ, it wasn't because of you that you were saved. It was by grace, grace is the title that we've been looking at this whole time in the book of ephesians it's a gift by god's gift that we're saved and then it says and keep going verse number six and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in christ jesus so not only did jesus forgive people their sins now it's like how does god view you right now he views you like you're on christ's throne with him in heaven right now you see how it's like you were dead Now he made you alive and didn't just make you alive, now he exalted you. Which means if you're in Christ, here's an interesting, odd concept. It's like you're seated right now with Christ, reigning and ruling with him. When's the last time you thought about that? When's the last time when you were mistreated and people didn't like you, that you thought, well, it's okay, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. So they cannot like me, that's okay. Know who you are and see how that affects the way you look at life and even our problems. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 7. It says, not only did he raise us from death spiritually, not only did he seat us with him in heavenly places, he also did this for a purpose. Number seven, verse seven gives a purpose. So that in the coming ages, so in the future, when everything is revealed, when God shows the world his power, it says he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You wanna know why you're saved? It's because God is showing the world how good he is. That reminds us of what we talked about In the first three sermons, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Why did God choose us? Well, to the praise of his glory. Why did Jesus redeem us? Well, to the praise of his glory. Why did the Spirit seal us? Well, to the praise of his glory. This all gets back to God in the end. When you look at this text and you think about yourself, you might want to brush it off and act like it's, it's not about you, okay? But this text is about you. It is about every single person in this room. You either were dead in your sins or you presently are dead in your sins. And here's what every one of us can admit, okay? I can admit it. You need to admit it. If you don't accept it as true, you need to accept it as true. That if you don't have Christ, you're doomed, right? Admit that. I'm doomed if I do not have God. I am doomed because I'm dead in my sin, because I'm stuck. If God doesn't do something about this problem, I'm doomed. I'm in trouble. Not just some, some trouble, not just small trouble, not some repairable thing that can just be fixed. No, no. That's it. I'm doomed if I don't have God. If God doesn't do something, we all need to admit that. First part of this talks about our sin problem. I'd love for you to write this down for point number one. If you're going to admit that, I want you to comprehend your massive sin problem. Point number one comprehend your massive sin problem. To comprehend means to figure out, to see it, to appraise it, to, to view it rightly, right? I don't want us to just trivially say, oh, dead in sins, but we're alive, right? Uh, no, no, like let that sit in for, for a little bit. What does it mean to be dead in sin, this massive sin problem? Okay? This morning, I want to teach a little bit about sin. This might be a little systematic, right, trying to go through what the whole Bible says. I'm not going to give you a million verses to write down, but I am going to give you a lot of verses to write down in this. You got subpoints under there because I want you to understand what sin is. Sometimes we use sin and that word so overly simplistically. It's the only word we know to talk about wrongdoing, okay? Sin has a lot of different shades to it. It means different things. God does not use it in only one way. He uses it many ways. First way he uses it is describing this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does that mean? Well, the first letter, I'd love for you to write it down. Letter A, um, you were born in the state of sin. You were born in the state of sin. State is in quotes. It's not scare quotes. I'm just trying to um, illustrate something with you that um, other people who have looked at the Bible and studied theology, they talk about there's, there's a difference when, you, when it comes to sin in these two ways. There are actions of sin that we can do that are wrong. Right? Um, there are sins of omission. There are sins of commission. right? Uh, sins of commission are like uh, there's a rule, like don't, you know, don't steal the cookie from the cookie jar, right? And you go and do that, right? There was a rule and you broke it. You stepped over the line. That's a transgression. That's committing a sin, right? Um, then there are things like, hey, take out the trash. You need to take out the trash. And when you don't do it, when you fall short of what you're supposed to do, that's a sin of omission. That's also called sin. But those two things, whether you commit a sin by doing something you shouldn't or you omit, which means you don't do something that you should do, that's an action of sin. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay? That's the most common way we talk about sin. In fact, committing sin is the most common way. We oftentimes forget about omitting things. But we're talking about a state of sin. What is a state of sin? It basically means this, that you, when you were born, you were born separate. You were born in such a way where your sin characterized you so much that, um, here's one way to think about it. Um, You did not become a sinner the first time you sinned, okay? Think that through. When's the first time you sinned? Some of us remember, like, oh, I remember one thing I did when I was a kid, and it was really wrong. When's the first time you sinned? I can't pinpoint that for myself, and you can't pinpoint that for yourself, if you're honest. Like, I don't know when the first time I sinned. When's the first time I didn't do something that I should have done? I don't know when I was like three days old, like, I don't know, Um, it's hard for me to pinpoint, right, because here's the reality, you don't become a sinner by sinning, you don't enter the state of sin by committing a sin, that's not your case, that's not my case, you're in a state of sin, and that's why you do sinful actions, like, you're in a place, a state, and the reason I say state, you know, You can imagine, right, you're in California right now. Arizona's across the border. Um, You know, you go to Utah, you go to Nevada. You'd have to move from state to state. You're in California now. You can't be in both, right, unless you're, I guess, you're straddling the line, the borderline. But you're in one or the other. Um, If you need to be in Nevada, you go to Nevada. If you need to be in Arizona, you go to Arizona, right? You can't be in California and Nevada at the same time, okay? You're in one or the other, When it says we're in a state of sin, here's what it means, that we are born in a way that is separate from God, And that we cannot do good things to please God because we're we're separate. There's a wall. There's a dividing wall. There's a chasm. Whatever visual illustration you want to give, there's separation. We're born in a state of sin. Some verses for you to write down. Isaiah 59.2. Isaiah 59.2 is an Old Testament verse that says, Our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Romans five says something similar Romans five twelve. so isaiah fifty nine two and Romans five twelve. here's what Romans five twelve says. therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, right through Adam, he chose to do what was wrong. And death came through sin. So sin entered the picture, then death follows shortly after. so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's an interesting topic and in Romans 5, if you've ever studied that, there's a lot of questions like, what does this mean? It sounds like when Adam did a sinful act, it's like we got punished for something that he did. Is that true? Well, in a sense, that is true, right? The idea of federal headship is the theological term that Adam was our representative in the garden, right? Adam represented not just Eve, which he did, he also represented us, right? And when he sins, we all get thrown into this pile of sin and now we're born in the state of sin. Have you ever wondered why um, kids don't come out as good people, Kids want to cry and scream and disobey, and you never have to teach your little siblings how to do what's wrong. Have you ever wondered about that? Why is that? Well, because they were born in a state of separation from God, and now, because they're doing that, now they they want to do sin. In fact, this doctrine is called the, the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. The idea is we are completely unable to do what God wants us to do. We're unable to meet the standard. Total depravity means imagine sin like a, like a virus, right? It's a virus that touches every part, right? It goes into the whole body or it goes into the whole world. The idea of total depravity comes from this, this passage and others. It basically means that we're bad people and we don't become bad people by doing bad things. We just start out as bad people and we do bad things because we are bad people, right? There's a difference there, okay? But that's what the Bible teaches very clearly. Psalm 53 says this. Psalm 53, 2 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's anyone who understands or anyone who seeks after God. And you'd assume that if God was looking down to find people that seek him, that there would be some people that naturally on their own would want to seek God, right? Here's what he says. They have all fallen away. Together, they have all become corrupt. That's a good word, right? You ever had fruit or something that gets corrupted, right? It gets moldy, it gets gross, it's eaten out from the inside. It's just gross and disgusting, right? It's corrupt. It says, that's what we're like. We're corrupt. We start out corrupt, and we get worse as time goes along. It says, so that there's none who does good. There's not even one. Jesus puts it like this in the New Testament. This is John chapter 6, verse 44. John 6, 44, here's what Jesus says. No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, right? So there's no one that's going to say, hey, I want to be on Jesus' team. Hey, I want to serve you. I want to glorify God with my whole life. There's no one who naturally wants to do that. The only people who seem to want to do that, God is doing something in them to drag them there, to bring them there. And then we willingly do it. But it doesn't happen on our own. It doesn't happen naturally. We won't want to. You ever wondered, like, why do I not want to obey God's rules? Why, Why does my flesh, why does it fight against it? Because you're a sinner. Right? Why, do, why do I like, not want to do the right thing? It's like when I have the option of do the right thing and it's hard and do the wrong thing and omit the right thing, like what do I want to do? Right? Well, I, I want to do what's right, but I also I kind of want to do what's wrong because I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. We have that draw towards that. Does't mean that a sinful person can never do something good, right That's a confusing. Topic right, and people say like, well, because if you're saying I'm a sinner and I, I can never do anything good, right? There are plenty of people who do good things, who are not right with God. The people who are dead in their sin. Here's how Jesus puts it: Luke 6:33. Luke 6:33. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same, right? So um, the the picture I always like to see there is, um, if at church we're told to be like welcoming and um, loving and um, there for each other. You know, the mafia is too. They're super nice. Well, no I mean, not real. They're they're but they're nice to each other, right? They give big gifts. I just imagine like the Italian mafia, right? They give big gifts for, for their kids' weddings and, you know, they'll they'll do anything. I'll I'll fix the plumbing in your house. I'll I'll do the electricity. I'll do it all for you. Right. Sorry, that was almost going into an accent. But like you can imagine, like, the mafia is really nice. If you're in the mafia, they're really nice to each other. Right? That's what Jesus said. Like, look, sinners are good to sinners. I'm not saying you can never do anything good, um, but, but we're not good people. It doesn't make us good people just because we do some good things. We start out bad because we're in a state of sin. We do things with mixed motives. Like, think about the best thing that you could ever do. Think about doing it, and then realize that if you did that thing, there's some mixed motives, right? If you did amazing things, even for God. It's like, well, yeah, I want to do amazing things for God. Well, do you want to be seen by people? Like, why do you want to do those things? Because sometimes even the good things we do are, are, are messed up because they're, they're mixed in with some motives that are not completely pure. The point is we cannot do good completely. Here's how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translations say like filthy rags, like the stuff that's at the bottom of a porta potty, right? That's slop, that you can't really distinguish one thing from another, if you know what I'm talking about. Um it's all blue, right, to make it not smell so bad. And there's like toilet paper. Like that is the description. Filthy rags, polluted garments. It's like our righteous deeds. If you think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna please God, He'll be happy with me. I don't need to trust in Christ. I'm gonna do it on my own. Um now what present should I bring to him? Okay, well the best thing I've got is like um the stuff that's at the bottom of the porta potty. Maybe he'll like that. No, it's it's polluted, it's corrupt, it's filthy rags. Even the good things we do are are not good. Second thing from the second verse here, Ephesians 2.2, 2, is that we follow the course of the world, we follow the prince of the power of the air, which means we're dead people, but we are inclined to do things. Second thing, let it be, you're naturally inclined to keep sinning. Okay? That's the truth for every single person in this room. You are naturally inclined to keep on sinning. Remember, you're born in a state of sin. You're born separate. You have what's called inherited guilt, even from Adam, and now your loves and defections and hearts are bent in a way where the default setting, so to speak, is to do what's wrong. I'm in a fantasy football league. I'm only in one. I can only take one. I can barely take the one I'm in. Um, I'm, bad. I'm so bad that I played fantasy baseball. This is kind of embarrassing. But I played fantasy baseball like two years ago. I was so bad, I drafted a good team. I actually had Mike Trout on my team. And there were people um, in real life who were obviously in my league who said, hey, I want Mike Trout. What can I do for you? so that I can have Mike Trout. So I, like, I don't know if that's wrong, but it's like, well, you know, you have a gift card or something? Like, I'll trade you, like, is that bad? Like, I was like I'll give you Mike Trout, like, because I didn't care. Like, I was so bad, I never updated my roster, right? So fantasy football, right, that's started, right? I, I care a little bit more, because it's once a week, I can kind of, like, adjust my roster and stuff. Um, I don't trade any real things in fantasy football, because I, I do want to win, but uh, for those of you in my league, Roy, if, if I start tanking, right, we can, we can talk. Um, <laughs> You know, if you want Cooper Cup for something, we can make it happen. Uh, but, like, when you do the draft, what you know the auto draft, you know how that works, right? In the auto draft, it will naturally pick the, the player who's best, right? And it will look at your team and say, okay, we need to pick this person. And it's just, it's a computer, and it's just based on the system, but it naturally picks the best. Um, and because of that, a lot of people are not very motivated to be on the draft. In fact, in my league, which I don't know if Roy's in the league, um, Drew, are you in the league? how'd you get in the league um how'd you sneak in there uh oh yeah you're on staff yeah it's Diego's league right um yeah man he was texting me like you gotta join you're gonna join because last time I told if you're a ninth grader I told you this last year um fantasy baseball was gonna join and then Josh Berner um who was a seventh grader at the time took the spot so I didn't get to play um wasn't a big sacrifice for me but whatever anyway um what am I saying? There wasn't that many people that were motivated to be in the draft. I bet 50% of the people in our league actually drafted because the other ones were just like, we'll just auto-draft because it's fine. Because if you auto-draft, sometimes you actually pick better than if you intentionally pick players, right? This this is a strategy that some people have, okay? Some of us think our hearts are like auto-draft, that if we just do whatever we feel like, it's going to go out, it's going to go well. Like, we could sit and plan it all out ahead of time, and it's going to be fine, or we can just kind of... Go with whatever we feel like at the time. Here's the problem. Our hearts are kind of like the opposite of how auto draft works. Auto draft picks the best first. Our hearts kind of go the opposite way. I think if auto draft worked by picking the people at the very bottom of the fantasy football list, everyone would draft. You know why? Because no one would want to depend on auto draft. If auto draft really picked the worst players possible, like the backup kicker for, you know, the Browns. No offense, backup kicker of the Browns. That's I'm sure you're really talented in high school, but like, um, it's just the truth, right? Uh, like if your fantasy football team picked the very worst first, every last person would get on the draft and be like, I don't want to, I don't want to go with the default setting. Okay? You need to start distrusting your heart in that way and think, okay, if I just feel like doing things, they're not good because I'm a sinner, because of what the Bible teaches. Here's some verses for you to write down. I'd love for you to write these down. There's four verses, um, First one comes in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. Here's what it says about our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. It's a liar. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it, right? I can't understand it. You can't understand it perfectly, but we should beware of it. That's Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 13, 23, another passage in Jeremiah. He speaks a lot of this because he got a bunch of Israelites who acted like they wanted to do good but really didn't. Jeremiah 13, 23, after you write that down, here's what it says. It says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard change his spots, right? Can't change some intrinsic features. It says, then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What's the point? A leopard can't change his spots, right? Can't scrub off you know, the black and white spots that a leopard has and say, okay, those are, those are gone. They can't do that, right? Same with us. We can't just start doing good when we're accustomed to do what's evil, because we are accustomed to do what's evil. Another verse for you to write down. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 15, 18. Matthew 15, 18 to 19. Here's what Jesus says very clearly. This is what comes out of the mouth, our words, proceed from the heart. So if you imagine a chain, it's like the heart, whatever's going on in the heart, leads to the mouth, and then whatever comes out of your mouth spews out to the world. If you want to know what people's hearts are like, well, listen to what they say. Listen to what they type. Hear what they say. This, and this defiles a person. For what it comes out of the heart will be things like this. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Right? Those things come out of our mouths, but where do they start? Well, they start in our hearts. Right? What's the source of all the evil in this world? Think about it. Anything that you think is evil that people do to each other, where does it start? It starts in the human heart. That's where it starts. Even if you say it's a learned behavior, like, well, someone learned it from their parents. Well, where do they get it? Well, do they get it from their parents? Well, no, their parents were great. Well, then it came out of the human heart. That's where it started. Problems in your life, the sin in your life, guess where it starts for you? It starts in your human, sinful heart that's bent towards sin. You're naturally inclined to do sin. Our passage says that we're naturally following Satan's schemes, too, which is one that's hard for us to fathom, but... uh, Jesus said this in John 8:44. he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his desires. These were like good Jewish people who were seen as good people. These were some religious leaders. He says, no, 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 but your, your dad, like the one that you like follow after, it's Satan. And like what you want to do is what he wants you to do. Whoa, that's extreme. That seems a little aggressive. Well, earlier in the passage, John 8:34, so that was John 8:44, 44, 10 verses earlier, John 8:34 here's what Jesus says Truly truly I say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin and that's really the problem if you're honest and if you've ever tried to stop sinning right some of you have tried to stop sinning right uh, some of you have tried to repent and you thought that by trying to repent God would look at you and say oh you're good now some of you tried this and how did that go how successful were you at stopping sinning right if you were enslaved to your gossip how, how was it like was it just easy you're like, "Oh, it's easy to stop saying things I shouldn't." Those of you who were enslaved to, to, to foul language, how easy was it for you to just stop cussing? Right? Those of you who are enslaved to evil lusts, sexual lust, how, was it easy? We're you just like, "Oh yeah, no, I just said I was done and now I'm done." Right? It's not that easy. Why? Because our hearts are enslaved to sin. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6, Romans 6:16. 6, he says, "Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one? that you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't be more clear. If you present yourself to sin every day, like m- many of us do, we wake up, and it's like we go to the idol of our, our sin, and we just, we just bow down again, right? Over and over again, and just give ourselves to our sin. Well, that, that, guess what? That makes you a slave of sin, and Jesus said that. If you practice sin, you're a slave to sin. I hope that by experience you've seen that, Right? Even if even if like you come every week and um, and you don't like me and you don't like the Bible like you don't want to talk about this, I hope even you can re- recognize that right. Like even if you don't want to have anything to do with God, I hope you can see that that you're enslaved to your sin and you can't get out. That you can't just try a little bit harder and you know you'll be fine and you'll stop sinning. I hope you hope you see that you're that you're a slave, that you're serving a master that wants to kill you, right? that you're following a leader that hates you in Satan. You're not following someone that loves you. You're not, I hope that even if you don't like what we talk about week in and week out, if maybe your parents make you come, I hope you at least recognize that, okay? Further, our passage says that we're children of wrath like the rest of mankind, whether Jew or Gentile, church kid or not. The last thing I want you to write down, letter C, is you deserve God's wrath for sin. I deserve God's wrath for sin. Um, that's what sin's all about. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want, I want to think about that pivot because that's about what Paul is about too. He's going to make this pivot and he's going to say, no, um, we were dead. We were enslaved, all those things, but God did something. If you're in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 2.4. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, didn't just make us alive, he raised us up with him. And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, Point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to thank God for stepping in to save unworthy people. I want you to thank God that he came and he stepped in to save unworthy people. This message of condemnation in some ways is an easy one because we all feel it. You could even probably come to this conclusion without picking up a Bible. You might even catch some of it, but you would never catch this. You would never catch the good news of what God did to save sinners. That God in his love sent himself, Jesus, the God-man, God the Son. He came and he did exactly what was required for you to be saved. He didn't do more. He didn't do less. Some of us think that Jesus came to die on the cross, and that's partially true, but he came to do more than die on the cross. He lived 30 plus years of a righteous life where you right now are failing, where you're enslaved to your sin and your lusts and and your passions and your bad language. You're enslaved right now. Guess what Jesus did? He came and he lived this righteous life that you couldn't live. That's what he did. That was necessary. It wasn't sufficient for Jesus to come and come for one weekend and just get tortured and die and then be resurrected. That was not enough. He had to live a righteous life in your place. The only way that you could be seen as acceptable, and for me to be seen as acceptable, is if Jesus did exactly what he did. He came to live a righteous life that we couldn't. He was not dead in his sins. He was the only person that was ever born without this corrupt sin nature, and with that, he stood up against every temptation. It was not, didn't make it easier for him. In, in some ways, it made it harder because he felt the full weight of temptation where many of us never really feel the full weight of temptation. We just give in the first time we feel like doing something wrong. But Jesus lived this perfect life and he did it out of his love for us. And we talk about that a lot. But when you think about God's wrath, you also have to think about God's love. Whenever we have a hard saying like what we just talked about, you also need to remember what God did for us. Uh, letter A, I want you to write this down from verse number four. God took initiative out of his great love if we're starting to understand this are we sinners yes were we born in the state of sin yes do we desire things that are sinful? yes we do we do actions that are sinful. yes do we deserve punishment yes we do because of what we've done but god that's why in your text i don't know if you see this on your page but all the subpoints in point number one what's that word that it starts with you 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 all three of those okay verse four to seven all those subpoints. what's the first word there? What is it? God. God not once, not twice, but three times. He took initiative. Psalm 103 says that he loves his people. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. He won't keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sin nor repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Um, he saves dead people, um, and dead people can't save themselves. Right? Think about every time Jesus like, resurrected someone. Happened three times. Happened to a little girl, happened to a young man, and it happened to a guy named Lazarus. Okay? And each time, it was like they were more dead than the last. Um, little girl was only dead for a couple minutes. Right, a couple hours. She still looked normal. She hadn't even been taken off her deathbed. And Jesus comes in and says, little girl, rise. And she does. Um, the second one was a young man. He was carried on the funeral pyre. So enough time had elapsed where you could imagine he started to look more dead than the little girl. The little girl probably still had the color in her face at that point. She barely looked dead. The second guy, he, he was more dead looking. Maybe he'd been dead for a day, maybe for a few hours. He started to look bad. And Jesus says basically the same thing. Get up. And he did. The man didn't do anything. The little girl didn't do anything. The most famous example is Lazarus, which happens thirdly, which is just so cool how the gospel writers show us that. that The first one is a little girl who's only dead for a little bit, right? But she's equally as dead as Lazarus. The second guy, young man, he was dead for a little while, a little longer. He looked a little bit more dead, but he was just as dead as a little girl. And Jesus told him to rise up and walk. He didn't do anything. He didn't call out. God did it. Jesus did it. Third guy, Lazarus, you know him, the brother of Mary and Martha, he was just as dead too. But the text tells us that he was so dead, it was four days, that he started to stink. He was wrapped up. The funeral was over. Like, it was the end of the funeral. He had already been buried. They were celebrating his life. They were mourning his death. And that's when Jesus showed up, and he called him out of the grave. Whether you think you're a little dead, or dead for a couple hours, or really, really dead and stinking, um, God can resurrect you out of his love. That's what this text says. If you've rejected him over and over and over again today, you can be right with him if you only call out on him and trust him. You can be forgiven. That's what he wants to do. He does that without our initiative. Romans 5 says that for while we were still weak, at the right right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only does he resurrect us, give us this new spiritual life, he also gives us these new privileges. That's the second thing. Letter B, God grants new life and privileges. Where you didn't care about God at one point, if you're a Christian, there was a time where you didn't care so much about him. Now you do. You weren't sensitive towards sin. It didn't, it, it didn't strike you as that bad. You thought you were just kind of doing what everyone else is doing. Now it's like you're sensitive to sin. Now you're like growing. He's causing this new life in you and and you're growing and now you don't like the same things you used to like. You're not the same kind of person. You don't talk the same way anymore. Why? Because God granted new life and also new privileges. The reason I say new privileges is because that's what the text says. That he has seated us with him. Like that's a big deal. He didn't just leave you as, okay, you're alive now, great, uh, figure it out. No, it's like he takes you and brings him with you and now you're like with him on his throne. That's, That's a big concept. We could take wrongly if we don't understand correctly. God raises the dead. He's the one who does it. Per- passage I want you to write down, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Colossians two, twelve to 15. If you were going to find another passage in the Bible that kind of says the same thing as Ephesians 2, this is like the best example. Colossians two, twelve to 15. Let me read it for you. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. We talked about last time. It says, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of the flesh, now talking to Gentiles again, God made alive together with him. So when does God raise us? Like, when does it happen? Well, in the resurrection of Jesus is how we get new life, right? If you're going to be very specific, um, God does not grant us new life through his death, Okay? That sounds like heresy if you're not careful. He doesn't grant us new life through his death. He grants us life through his new life, through the resurrection. In his death, he pays for sin. He takes care of that sin debt, but in his resurrection is when he gives us new life. Goes on, he says, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, so God didn't say, hey, I'm not gonna worry about that sin anymore. No, he took that sin, the sin that you've committed, the sin that I've committed, he took it and he nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, he also did this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's probably a reference to these angelic classes. Again, we're talking about Satan. Do you notice how like, Satan comes up, dead in sin comes up. It all comes up at the same time because when Jesus did this, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You understand that the thing that, makes satan and his demons look bad is when he saves a sinner when he nails this debt that you have to the cross that puts these rulers and authorities who think they have control over you puts them to shame because jesus proves to them and to you and to the world that he has more power than them he grants new life grants new privileges privileges like forgiveness a clear conscience Privileges like prayer access that you now get to go to God where you couldn't before. You were an enemy of God, but now you're a friend of God. You get privileges like that you're an heir, that you now will inherit the kingdom with Christ, the one that you didn't deserve, the one that I don't deserve, but we get to inherit that. Tons of privileges. Back in our passage, verse 7, Ephesians 2, 7 says that he did all this to show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. That's why God did this. Never forget it. If you're a Christian and you think, okay. I get this, um, so this is great news, but I, but I already know it, I, I already knew this. Um, what about you? Well, remember why God saves. Remember why he does it. He does it for his own glory. He does it to show everyone how powerful and patient and kind and loving he is. That's letter C. God saves for his own glory. Just remember that's, that's the ultimate thing that stands behind all of this. God saves for his own glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. Paul, the guy who wrote this, also wrote the book of First Timothy. In that book, he said that he was a really sinful person. Maybe you've heard this before. This is First Timothy one sixteen. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, he says, but I have received mercy for this reason. This is why I was shown mercy. That me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him and have eternal life. He says, I, I'm the, the worst sinner, and the reason that God used him, the worst sinner. Do You know what Paul did before he was a Christian? He was killing Christians. He was finding families where Christians were in the house. He was taking them, ripping fathers and mothers away from children. He was killing these Christian parents simply because they believed in Christ, because he hated Christ so much. So if you start to believe the lie that you're so far gone, and you're so sinful that God could never save you, just be careful before you think that. Paul was the foremost of sinners, and he says, you know why God saved me? It was to show you, high school student. He was to show you, even years later, even generations later, it was to show you that God is able to save even the worst type of people. So even if you think, like, this is a church thing, this is a thing for people who go to church, this is for people who have Christian families, it's not for me. Okay? It is for you, just because, like I said at the beginning, death is for you, just as it is for me, right? This is absolutely for you. He says, this is to show his perfect patience as an example, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Then Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. See that? It's like, I'm saved, why? Because God should get glory. And by the way, let's give God glory, right? That's what he says. If you're saved, you need to give God glory. And when you think of your life and how you used to be dead in sin, your first thought needs to be, God, you saved me god you deserve the glory i don't know if you've ever heard of the story of mount saint helens have you ever heard that story there's a volcano in washington state that blew up in 1980 on may 19th, or may 18th 1980 um, the volcano officially blew up right this is washington state um, there's a lot of people that live out in the country there near the volcano and for months beforehand People were warning them, saying, hey, uh, you should evacuate. Hey, we, we see there's a lot of earthquake activity. There's some landslides. Clearly, this volcano, we thought it was dormant, but I, th- I think this volcano is, is going to blow up, so you guys should move. And there's a lot of people that had to move. Thousands of people had to relocate, but not everybody did. In fact, there's a guy named Harry Randall Truman, became famous he did a interview with national geographic where you can imagine all these you know nerdy scientists are coming around saying like are you gonna leave are you gonna leave and they're they're testing all all the earth and how the uh, everything's moving around and they talked to this guy and harry randall truman and he says something kind of interesting kind of funny but kind of weird Uh, he says i've been here he's 83 years old um he says i've been here for decades he says i'm gonna stay right here that's his famous line so he did And months pass, and, you know, he might have been thinking that he was justified in his decision to stay, uh, but Harry and his wife and his kids, um, they stayed. I I couldn't tell you exactly why. Maybe it was just because he was used to it, because it was his home, because he thought maybe, all this is bogus. There's no way this is actually going to happen. But it did actually happen, right? They were right. All the people that warned them were correct. On May 18th, 1980, Uh, when this volcano erupted, it wasn't just Harry and his family. There were 57 people who died because of this. Um, There's good news and bad news in that fatality count. It wasn't as much as it could be because a lot of people listened. Uh, Those 57 people, almost all of them were people who knew better, who were warned, who stayed. And when that volcano erupted, that was it. They didn't listen. He did stay there. His body's still there uh, under bunch of ash and and volcanic activity. Um, Here's why I bring up this story, because a lot of us think that in order to be separated from God, we would have to do some really bad thing. We'd have to do something just outrageous, something that God could never forgive us for, and we think that we would have to do that. Um, Here's the truth. All you have to do to be separated from God, all you have to do to miss out on eternal life is just stay where you are, just to stay seated, just not to do anything. Just to hear sermon after sermon and be like, yep, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do what I want. That's all you have to do. Now, I say that, and I don't mean that in a light manner. Just like, if you're not going to do anything about this, if you're going to hear the truth and you're going to refuse to embrace Christ, you're like this guy who stayed. We feel bad for people when they don't know the truth and they die. I mean, imagine if there was people on this mountain of the 57 who never heard that it was going to erupt. We feel really bad for them. You don't feel as bad for Harry. You might feel a little bit bad. There's, there's obviously compassion, right? I can't believe this guy died. I mean, but he was warned though. He didn't know. Here's the reality for you. You've been warned. Many of you are warned often. Many of you say, I will not respond to this message. I won't repent. I will not give my life to Christ. I will not trust in him. And you have a myriad of reasons why, but I, I just want to tell you, none of them are good ones. Not good enough. You don't need to do some terrible thing to be lost. All you have to do is sit still and do nothing. If you do understand that, and you've been convicted, and you know the truth, God's answer is pretty simple to all this. First is you need to agree with the truth that he says about you, to agree that you're a, hard, a bad person, which is you know hard for us to do. But it's also to turn to him and to recognize that you're the only one that can forgive me, save me, Give me eternal life. You're the only one, so I need to turn to you and trust you. What that's going to look like, that turning, the Bible calls it repentance, means you're going to have to turn from a lot of who you are right now. You're going to have to stop with the prospects that you have of your your life, of being the God of your own life and the king of your own kingdom. You're going to have to turn from that and say, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. If that makes me look stupid or weird or different, that's fine. I'm going to do that. But that's not the only thing. The other part that we're going to get to next week that the text goes on to say is that we need to trust in him. Faith in Christ. That's how a person is saved. You want to know how someone's saved? It's it's that, that they trust in Christ, that they say, I'm not going to live for me. I'm going to live for you. But the, the pivotal changing point is when you trust in Jesus and say, you're my king, you're my boss, and I trust you. Please forgive me. Please don't deal with me according to my sin. Deal with me according to Christ. Let me be in Christ. God save me. That is when a person's life is changed. That's when he resurrects us from the dead. But it would be such a sad thing for you to have been warned and to miss out just by not doing anything. I want to pray. The worship team is going to come up. We want to sing one final song about how good God is to offer this message to us. But I, I do want you to think about yourself. Like I said at the beginning, think about the day that you will face death. As you think about that. Some of you need to call out on God today. Some of you have been turning from God. and God does not turn away people who come to him. So let's pray right now. God, we're comforted by your word that tells us that you don't turn away people who turn to you. We're comforted that you have all power, that you created the world with your word. We know that the miracle of recreation, of new life, is even more amazing than that first original miracle of creation but we believe you can do it i know that you've saved me and that you have saved many in this room because you've um, turned our hearts to you and we believe and trust that jesus is able to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness i pray specifically for the people who come in and out of these doors and they um, don't really care i pray that this morning that this would be a wake-up call for every last one of us and not just a wake-up call that gets us sensitive to these things for a little while but that we would act, that we do, that we do something about this. What we need to do is not by trying to earn our way to you, but what we need to do is turn to you, trust you. We believe that you forgive all those who turn to you. We trust you this morning. We're thankful that you offered us salvation in your son. We pray that this morning we'd also worship you as you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray.